0: On the day this podcast is released, there will only be four days left until Christmas. And in honor of this holiday season, I decided to share some of the most popular episodes of this past year. Today's episode had the second highest downloads of all of my episodes in 2022. It originally aired in April. It is episode 39. This is the episode in which I am joined by former Ramsey employee, Dan Watt and his wife, Summer, as well as Melissa J. Hogan. And I wanted to make sure that you know that even though there aren't new episodes being shared here on their regular feed, I do have new content I'm sharing with my Patreon community. This week I'm catching up with Colby and Kat Wilkins, and they give us an update on what's happened since they shared their story on the podcast. I hope you check that out at patreon.com slash Untangled Faith. This is Amy Fritz, and you're listening to Untangled Faith, a podcast for anyone who has found themselves confused or disillusioned in their faith journey. If you want to hold on to your faith, while untangling it from all the things that are not good and true, this is the place for you. In 2020, I picked up a book by D.L. Mayfield and chuckled when I flipped open to a chapter mentioning a popular Christian financial podcast. She mentioned some of the positives of the message, but then she said this. The only problem is being financially safe and secure isn't a major theme of scripture, but unjust economic practices are. I want to see predatory lending end as much as anybody, and I long to see my neighbors freed from consumerism, but I need and want a bigger dream than the idea of becoming a millionaire. I need a dream that encompasses God's dream for the world, that everyone would flourish, that everyone would have what they need to thrive as the image bearers they are. This conversation that I'm sharing with you today has been made possible by the fact that those of us involved in this episode have spent the last several years processing together our experiences with the ups and the downs of Financial Peace University and the rhetoric coming from The Ramsey Show. While we have all had different levels of understanding and adhering to the plan, all of us have found ourselves with some serious questions. Some of these questions started before we broke ties with the organization, and some of these realizations came later. We don't claim to be unbiased observers. We've all had very painful and disappointing experiences with Ramsey Solutions, but we don't think that negates the very real questions we raise. Melissa Hogan joins me today, and so do Dan and Summer Watt. We'll drop into this conversation where Dan and Summer start to share their experience. So, why don't we start by introducing who you all are, like your background with the baby steps and with Dave's rules, because it's bigger than just
1: the baby steps.
2: Yeah. So, I'm, I'm Dan. I'm Summer. And uh, we got connected with the baby steps back in 2008. We were expecting our first child. It was actually her fault. <laughs> it was. Fault. I, I,
1: brought the, I brought it into our family. <laughs> I, I was pregnant and I was going to be going from working full time to like part time. And, you know, we didn't have our money combined for the first couple of years we were married. And um, we got by because we had these two full time incomes. I'd paid off all my student loans pretty much on my own. When I knew that I wasn't going to be working full time, I kind of panicked because I'm like, how am I going to buy stuff for the baby if I don't even know what kind of money, like how much money we have? I knew that my income was about to drop significantly, and I knew that. I mean, we had a joint checking account, but I really had nothing to do with it. I didn't know how much money was in it. And so I'd heard the name Dave Ramsey, like a few people kind of toss it around here and there. Um, And so I went to the library. And it's funny because I was actually looking for Susie Orman's book at the library. And this is 2008. (laughs) This is like peak recession time, you know. And the only book left on the shelf in the financial section was um, Financial Peace Revisited. So um, I I picked it up and I read it. And to me, it really spoke to me because I grew up in a low income like family. Um, When I was in seventh grade, we almost got our house foreclosed. If it wasn't for the fact that my parents knew somebody from our church that was a loan officer at a bank, we would have lost our house. And that friend of my parents, you know, took a great risk in refinancing our my parents' mortgage so that we wouldn't get our house foreclosed. And so that really, really stuck with me. And I didn't want to be in that situation ever again. So that's why I think financial peace really um, resonated with me because I had that in my background of losing things. And that's why hearing Dave's story Um, really resonated with me. Now, um, I don't know if Dave was ever in a situation that he was going to actually lose his house like we were. I I think that's why it really made sense to me um, because I was very averse to to debt and I just didn't want to end up in that place. I, I think I saw that could happen if we didn't get our financial act together. And so I read the book and then tried to get him On board with it. Um, He was a little resistant to it because he would say things like, you know, we could make more money if we invested versus paying off debts and stuff like that. And um, when I was paying my student loans off, I actually did the debt snowball without even knowing what it was. Because for me, I liked seeing the smallest loan get smaller and smaller and smaller. So I think that's why I really was attracted to the baby steps and why I thought it made sense. I wasn't financially sophisticated at all. I just did what felt good and paying off my student loans. I think what convinced him was um, we were living in Columbia, Missouri, which is like two and a half hours from Kansas city. And I was listening to the radio show every day. I heard that Dave was coming to Kansas city And so I asked him if we could go and he was kind of on the fence. He didn't really seem interested. And I said, well, but we can get barbecue if we go. And so that sold him. He's like, okay, fine. You know, we'll, we'll go to Oklahoma Joe's after the event. And then when he went, I think just the, the, the live events really played on your emotions, you know? Um, And I think that's how he got bought into was the
2: live event, and and I would add, very early in our marriage, I was very arrogant, coming from a a family that was that didn't have the financial problems that her family did, um, and I felt like I know this money thing, I don't really need to listen to you. And also coming from a very complementarian background, I felt like you know it was my responsibility, and I know it, and I, I was just very very arrogant in our early years. Something about the live event finally going and listening. Yes, it does play on your emotions, but it did. I think it opened up something in me that for the first time ever, I started thinking, we're in this together. We should be doing our financial journey together. And so regardless of how things played out in future years, I think that was a very valuable lesson that we mm-hmm. we learned very early on. We got on the program a year and a half later, heard an ad on the radio that they were hiring developers. Moved to Tennessee, worked there for almost 10 years.
0: And did you follow the baby steps then?
2: We followed them probably closer, I would say, than most employees based on conversations I've had with others. I think we shifted around saving for college. We kind of aggressively paid our house off and pushed pause on some other things. So I wouldn't say we followed it to the letter, but very closely, though.
1: And I think the reason why I wanted to pay the house off was, like I said, um. You can't lose a house that you own, you know. If you don't, if you don't don't owe any money on it, the only way you lose your house is if you don't pay your taxes. Um, and so I think that's why that appealed to me. But then also, um, I saw like an amateurization chart of how much our house would cost if we act if we didn't pay it off early. Like if we paid if we waited the entire um, our first house in Missouri, if we waited the entire thirty years, how much we would be paying an interest and everything and so that just kind of ticked me off actually because it's like um you don't realize how much you're going to be paying in interest if you do just pay it over the 30 years so um I think that's why we wanted to do pay the house off early so you had a
0: credit score like early in your marriage and then you stopped did you stop using credit cards and we came back from
1: Kansas City and cut up the cards like yeah, we did not have literally a, got scissors out and cut them out, so we, we had nothing, we had like no fail safe after that. It was like, so by yeah, the time you that,
0: had your house paid off, the one in Tennessee at a certain point, then you didn't have any credit score. Is that correct?
2: Yeah, so
1: it, uh, it took a couple months, yeah,
2: yeah, out, out of order here, but we ultimately paid the house off in 2016, okay, and we weren't keeping track of it super close, but the our credit score did go to zero over the next year or so.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. And in that time period of paying the house off, you know, I was I was working. I I wasn't working full time. I was working part-time, but you know, I'm a nurse. And so I voluntarily worked literally every single holiday for two years because there's a shift differential for that. You know, you get extra money for working holidays. So I did that. You know, he was doing Extra contract work, like literally working through his lunch break at work, working after work, getting up early and working. So, I mean, between the two of us, we had four jobs, started out with two kids or one, sorry, one kid. We just had the one when we started. And then when we paid the house off, we had four so in 2016 we had four kids. So we added three children to our family in that time period.
0: Melissa, your experience, I'd love to hear your experience with finances and you know obviously your your intersection with the Ramsey organization.
3: If people listen to your podcast for a while then they know that I was a Ramsey spouse. I actually had no idea who Dave Ramsey was. My parents had taught me to budget. I uh, did our budgeting. I had always wanted things like that to be a very equal partnership in doing things, but that was not really how that worked out. My husband at the time really left all of that to me, and so I did our budgeting, paid our bills, we had, you know, each had a credit card from college that, as one does, uh, had you know things that rolled over from college. I did not have any college loans, but I had some loans from law school, and he had some some college loans or grad school loans. Yeah, so I did our budgeting, but not knowing anything about who Dave Ramsey was. And then my husband at the time got a job there in 2005.
0: Just a note regarding pay. Obviously, we don't know what kind of salary they're offering these days. In Dan and Summer's experience, they took a pay cut to work for Dave, and so did Melissa's former husband.
3: He took a pay cut to go there from working at a bank. It was really tight for many years. (laughs) And and we had, uh, right after he worked there, we had our second child. Then we had another child a year later. I remember doing our budgeting and By the time we had three children, I had mastered it down to our grocery budget was $80 every two weeks for a family of five. Now, granted, this was in 2007, 2008, um, but that was obviously when the market was bad and things were bad. So, yeah, I shopped at Aldi. I had a list of all of the possible things we would buy and I had exactly how much they cost. I would make the list before we would go calculate the tax. If it was over $80, I would start crossing things off the list and we did not buy bacon or orange juice or anything like that. That was a luxury for many years. That was my experience with budgeting, but I never really knew exactly what the baby steps were or what the rules of Ramsey were. I had three small children, two then three small children. I had a child with health complications and then obviously was diagnosed with a terrible disease. So that was not really the forefront of my mind because I I knew how to budget. And um, my husband at the time didn't really seem to care. whether or not we followed the baby steps, which I found strange at the time. But again, I was like, uh,
0: okay. You went along. Did he become more involved in budgeting? And no, did he ever come Um, home and say, oh, we probably shouldn't be using credit cards anymore? No, no.
3: I had a credit card. I had the same credit card I had since college. And uh, I had paid it off and I actually kept it. I was working as a lawyer when our kids were young and and before that. But then, you know, I started doing work from home, both legal work and consulting work. And so I kept the credit card and used it for business expenses. And I asked him on a couple of different occasions, hey, you know, because I I knew enough to know that Dave was not a credit card person. And especially as my husband at the time grew, grew more prominent in the company, I was like, Hey, should I really have this credit card? Like, isn't that inconsistent? And you're like, don't worry about it. But here's the thing. It was so good that I kept that credit card because as anyone knows who leaves a marriage, you need a credit score, (laughs) You really do. And as an advocate for people who sometimes can't advocate for themselves, for women that may need out of a toxic marriage, um, it really hamstrings them to not have financial resources and not to understand their financial resources, and certainly to not have access to credit.
0: I think it's interesting. We have this similar experience here. The women were like the ones that sort of introduced Dave the Dave Ramsey way to the family. That's how it happened in our house. Sounds like that's how it happened with Dan and summer. And then Melissa, you actually introduced your husband literally to Dave through some sort of a thing that you won, right? Did you win a meeting with him? I won a silent auction item
3: that was to go sit in on his radio show, but it actually had nothing to do with who Dave was or or anything like that it was that my husband and I had each had a radio show in college and I thought oh that's really fun he can go sit in on the radio show now you know when that story was spun a different direction and I subsequently heard it years later I was kind of like that's not how that happened but as, as one does in a place where you question yourself and you're told something else, I thought, well, maybe I misremembered that, but I did not. I can clearly say that now.
0: And so for people that are listening, that you've probably heard, some of you have heard of Financial Peace University, or you've heard of Dave Ramsey from his books or his radio show or podcast, however you consume that information. But Dan, could you kind of explain what some of the rules are besides like the order of the steps? Like, what are the things that are like kind of central to his teaching when it comes to things you should or shouldn't do?
2: The the core is really the seven baby steps. Okay. You know, and I've, I've got them up right here for the people who don't know what they are.
1: I don't know what they are. <laughs> so, uh, I'll be listening. <laughs> Wilson well, needs to well- know. Well, you're, you're never supposed to co-sign on a loan for somebody um, you're not supposed to loan money to family or friends. And he'll, he'll go through this long thing about it and then say, don't loan it to them. Give it to them. Yeah. Because he said, "What what is the saying? That Thanksgiving doesn't taste the same or something like that.
2: So it's not really written as baby step zero, but the starting is you commit that you're never going to borrow money again. And so baby step one is save $1,000 for your starter emergency fund. Baby step two, pay off all your debt except for the house using the debt snowball method. Baby step three is save three to six months of expenses and a fully funded emergency fund. Baby step four, invest 15% of your household income into retirement. Baby step five, save for your children's college fund. Baby step six, pay off your home early. Baby step seven, build wealth and give. Yeah. Yeah. So when you, when you do the budget forms, the very first item on the form is to give 10% 10 of your income. The, Idea being that that's a tithe, but for the non-religious people that do happen to take the program, he'll suggest give 10% away to some cause.
0: So he says, Dave would say, you know, if you're, I've heard it referred to as this way, if you're just doing it a little bit, not really all in, it's Dave-ish, doesn't want you to be Dave-ish, that's not how it works, really wants you to be fully bought in. And to be fully bought in, would you agree that he would say, you're not taking on any more debt? and you're not using credit cards. And if you had Mm -hmm. them, you should cut them up.
1: Well, and it's it's implied there too. It's not really listed in the baby steps, but the implication there, he uses the term scorched earth. He says, go scorched earth on your budget. And so beans and rice, rice and beans, you know um, you don't see the inside of a a restaurant (laughs) to say it like him, unless you work there, you know, kind of thing.
2: You don't Um, take a vacation. You
1: don't take a vacation. Right. Right. No luxury items. (laughs) You're not getting your nails done. Nobody's cutting your grass except for you. And maybe you need to be cutting your neighbor's grass. Uh, You're getting the second job. If you listen to him, like in both FPU and on the radio, these are the things that you are supposed to be doing. And he refers to that as having laser focus.
0: When can I buy a house? Like, where is that in the steps?
1: Not until you're debt free and you have your three to six month emergency fund to have a 20% down payment on a fixed rate um, fixed interest rate, loan, no more than a quarter of your take-home pay. 15 years. Yeah. If you're wondering what
0: that would look like as far as the cost to buy a house where the Ramsey organization operates, you would need quite a bit of money to do this the way Dave suggests. A three-bedroom house in Williamson County is very likely going to cost you at least $400,000. That means you need to have 80 grand to put down as a down payment, and you would need to also have three to six months of expenses saved and no other debt.
3: Can I just point <laughs> out that this is a lot of rules. It's suspiciously like legalism.
0: Suspiciously, uh, but Dave refers often. He says this isn't like just original to him. All of it. This is God and Grandma's rules for finances. And we'll talk more about giving credit to God or, or Grandma later. But I'm curious. Like, did you guys have a certain point where you thought, I don't know, I question whether this is like the right thing, either for me, for yourselves, for other people? Like what were some of those cracks?
1: There were, there were cracks here and there. Um, you know, I would hear him talking to people that would talk about having to drive a long way to work. Maybe there were people that lived in a rural area and I can relate to that because I grew up in a very rural area. My dad drove about an hour to work to have a good paying job. And I remember hearing people calling into the show talking about their cars and, um, you know, there would be a disagreement between them and their spouse and maybe they wanted to buy a nicer car because they had to drive an hour to work. And they would be in a similar situation to like my parents and they would get all over their case and tell them that they either need to quit that job or they need to move closer to the job or whatever. And there was no room for nuance in there for maybe the people loved their house. Maybe they lived on a family farm, but they had to drive an hour to get to a nice paying job. There was no nuance at all. It was just, well, this is what you need to do. And if you're not willing to do it, then you're not willing to work on your finances. You're not prioritizing your family. I mean, I knew he wasn't omnipotent because (laughs) he would say things um, to people that were nurses that would call in they would talk about how much money they were making and he would interrupt them and say, that can't be right. Nurses make good money. And they would be like, no, this is what I make. And he would talk about how, how high, highly paid nurses are and everything. And they must not be doing their tax forms right or whatever, if that's what their take home pay was. And then his recommendation was always, we'll just go pick up a few shifts in the ER because they pay a lot of money for that. And number one, I want to know where these highly paid nurses are because I want to go work where they work. And number two, you can't just show up at the ER and be like, Hey, I'm here to make that like big money that I'm supposed to be able to make by moonlighting here. I have no ER experience. I don't know anything about, you know, what to do if a trauma rolls in, but Hey, I'm here to make big money. Cause Dave said I could like things like that, you know? So I knew that he was wrong about certain things. And having that, knowing that he could be wrong, made it a lot easier for me to, I was more open-minded when people would tell me things later on.
3: I want to point out when you said nurses call in at first, I thought you said when narcissists call in, (laughs) because I (laughs) I was waiting for the first time that word would come up, but back to that word, trying to tell somebody that they're wrong about what they make. Is super gaslighty. That's <laughs> like, no, you're you're telling me information about your own life, and I'm telling you, no, you're actually wrong about your own life.
2: I was fully bought on once once we actually joined the program. So you know, aside from us moving the steps around a little bit for our own personal situation, and I guess we can get into this later. But I've now recognized the term personal finance is personal. So we made some alterations that. Kind of fit our situation, but during this process, I would see coworkers or their spouses acting like this just can't be done. I can't, I can't get out of baby step two. I can't get my debts paid off, or home ownership is just so I, I can't fathom that ever happening. There were people that I worked around; that were just disheartened. And I think she would see it more from some of the other spouses in
1: the Lampo ladies group for sure. And,
2: and so I would be kind of judgmental of those people. Like mm-hmm, you know, same. it works for us. So, you know, like I said, I was kind of fully bought onto the, the well, program. it's, it's
1: it's billed as a one size fits all plan. Dan and summer, you could be like,
0: Oh, all you got to do is work four jobs. If we do it. We, I know.
1: Well, we were like the poster children, you know, because we paid our house off in yeah in 2016. But how old were we? I'm trying to think. How old were we? We were under 35. Yeah.
0: Not everybody is in that situation you would have been in where Dan's experience and his skills were in um, software engineering. And he's and really good at it. There's always things that you can pick up with that in summer, you were trained as a nurse, as long as you are, you know, as there are shifts that are open in areas that you were trained for. And it seems like there's always a need
1: you could pick up. Both of us had
2: skills that we could do hours out of a normal eight to five or nine
1: to five. Right. Right. Because, um, I worked a lot, I worked night shift at that time and I worked a lot weekend shifts and then i worked all those holidays too because because they give you a shift differential for the holidays and for the weekends as well so i i mean we we had that but we also had the advantage that I was the only one that brought debt into our marriage. Like he was fortunate that his parents paid for his college. And then he was given a hand-me-down car when he graduated from college. So he, he actually brought positive income. Like I had, I had like 60 grand in student loan debt and I had a car loan when we got married and then he actually had money saved up. We were fortunate. We weren't a dual student loan family.
2: Yeah. And and again, we're talking 20, I brought into the marriage, I don't know, probably a positive of $30,000 of either cash stocks, vehicle, et cetera.
1: Right. Because his parents were older when he was born. Um, they were well-established when he was born. And so, They, you know, started savings for him. They paid for his college. And then they also just had savings that when he graduated from college, that was just for him. And we used that as the down payment for our very first house. Right.
3: He brought in financial net worth and he brought in career net worth. You know, I think this goes to one of the issues we'll probably talk about in terms of how it does or doesn't work with systemic poverty. Because you look at like you guys were the poster children. And, you know, had things that you brought in that made it possible for that to work, it seems like. right, And,
2: and we're talking 2010 numbers, not 2022 numbers. The times have changed and... Well, the cost of college and housing and everything else has gotten crazy expensive just in the last couple of years.
1: Right, right. Like our house that we bought in Tennessee, we we bought a house in a town during a time that, you know, there's this big GM plant that's been shut down for years. Spring Hill, like almost everything on the market was either in foreclosure or Or short or short sale when we bought our house. So we got we got a great house for like an amazingly cheap price. It appreciated a lot from the time we bought it until the time that we sold it when we moved. Yeah, but I think also with My financial background and me having student loan debt, it would have been a very different situation if I had married somebody that had a similar financial situation to me and it might not have worked out so well. So then I wouldn't have been one half of the poster children. You know, we were very fortunate, like I said, the lack of him having debt. And then we had a good down payment for our first house when we got married because his parents had saved for him. Or
3: for example, like what if you had become disabled, Summer? you know what if you had become disabled from high medical bills and then you also couldn't work i mean there's just so many variables that
0: can happen in people's lives
3: or like, if
2: you know something unspeakable happened and we got divorced
0: yeah yeah and no no credit there uh, there's and nuance and un, uncertainty that you can't you can't plan for you know
2: i think i think to melissa's point about the credit score and and divorce, I, we never tracked her credit score. I would occasionally look at mine, I would pay, you know, the 20 bucks or whatever it was to look at it. But our mortgage was in my name. And we didn't have a car loan, we didn't have any student loans, we didn't have a credit card. So her score probably was zero for a lot longer before we even had the house paid for.
1: Was our house in Missouri? I think it might've been in both of our names. It was was. because I had paid off my student loans. And so I had a really good credit score (laughs) because I had paid a lot of money off of student loans.
2: The circumstances of us buying our house in Tennessee, I think it made more sense to just have my name on the loan, but we weren't even considering that that would cause her score to go to zero a lot faster.
3: My ex-husband's name was the only name on the loan because I wasn't working at the time. I had children at home. Thankfully we were both on the deed. This was the only name on the loan. And so if I had not kept that credit card, my entire marriage, I would not have had a credit score and the effects for someone coming out of a marriage that would have been really, really challenging.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. Like if you had needed to get an apartment or something, um, right. And
3: I had to, well, I had to refinance my house. And so I wouldn't have been able to refinance my house without a credit score.
0: Yeah. Because when it comes to a divorce settlement, oftentimes one person keeps the house, but it results in needing to refinance and get money out for the, the other
1: individual. But if you hadn't been on the deed of the house and you had like needed an apartment or something with a zero credit score, you know, this happens to women. If they're in that situation and they need an apartment, they can't get an apartment and it's going to be hard for them to get utilities in their name. And if they're women that they've been stay at home mom the whole time, so then they don't have the work experience or they have a huge gap in their resume, you know, it's going to be really hard for them.
0: Yeah. It makes it really tricky. We didn't have time to cover all of this in our conversation, but Dan and Summer moved in 2020. They put their paid-for house on the market and ran into quite a few roadblocks in getting a mortgage on a new home due to the fact that they didn't have a credit score. Dan wrote an article about that experience on his website, and I will link to that in the show notes. Okay, so this probably doesn't apply to to Melissa, but for you, Summer and Dan, when you were working on getting out of debt, was there ever a time that you put all of your money except for $1,000 into your debt
2: so we did have one thing that came up she had a loan that was forgivable so long as she worked full-time and she had switched to part-time when we had our our children and the state finally caught up to us and we had kind of forgotten about it and they caught up to us and they said you owe us x number of dollars for you know the fact that you've only been working part-time for the past couple of years I had come into the marriage with some savings, I jobs that I had had in high school and college and such. I had banked some of that money uh, and then invested in tech stocks. You know, David said, Dave would say, you shouldn't be in single stocks. Well, I was still in single stocks at this point. The amount of money that I had in the stock market was almost exactly the amount that she owed back to the state for this loan. And it was a real moment of clarity for me to realize that we were still a few months in the program here. Even though it was my money that I had saved up during high school and college, it was actually our money because I had brought it into marriage, just like it was not just her debt, it was our debt. And so that was a, a real good moment of clarity for me. But yes, we actually liquidated assets to get rid of the debt.
1: We sold my car. I had a car that
2: I loved. We sold it and we bought like a $1,500, 1993 Toyota Camry with 300,000 miles Wow. It, it was a beater car. Yep.
1: <laughs> your car. You know, I'm still a little sad about selling my Honda, <laughs> but I, you know, at the time though, I was so bought into it and I felt guilty. I, I think that's one of the things is, um, I think it puts like guilt and shame on you for your debt. I didn't really want to, but I was like, well, we should sell this because, yeah. you know,
0: I want to chase that rabbit. It's cause it's not really a rabbit trail. It's one of the main reasons we're here is, To really process through, and correct me if I'm wrong, Summer, that guilt and shame comes from this belief that you were doing finances wrong. When you frame something as God's way, it's hard to argue against doing it that way. And then it does bring some of that guilt and shame if you're not doing it or don't
1: feel like it's working. He refers to debt as pain. And so I was the one that had all of this debt that, um, from school and then my car. And so it's like, I brought pain into our family.
3: I think there's a whole, maybe you could call it secular guilt and shame. There's secular guilt and shame it, that would be there, even if he hadn't woven, got into it by saying, this is the, the right way. And the implication being, if you're doing it some other way, you're doing it the wrong way. Well, I think the baby steps have some truth in them. It doesn't make them the truth. So I think there would be guilt and shame, even if he didn't, we've got into it. But I feel like it gets 10 times worse when you say this is God's way, not just the right way. This is God's way. So then not only if you're not doing it this way, you're doing it the wrong way. You also may be sinning. And you may be going against your faith if you're doing it some some way other than this. you know. Then I have to look at what he says as synonymous with what God says, which is all sorts of wrong. And I think that is where the damage is done to people's psyches, to people's faith. And that's why I get really fired up about it.
1: Yeah. Well, absolutely. And like, you know, I listen to the radio show all the time every day. Um And so he would talk about, um, you don't deserve anything. You only deserve what you can pay for. And so so that's where some of the guilt and shame comes from too, because it's like, oh, I must be really greedy. If I wanted a car, like my car I had in college was a clunker. And so I was like, I must've been really greedy to have wanted a new car or it was a new to me car, but a new car. When I got out of college, I did work through college, but I still had to take out student loans. Um, because I changed my major, I was in school for five and a half years to get a bachelor's degree. You know, I get this constant message of, I didn't deserve any of that, because I took out debt for it. It's not just looking at the baby steps on paper and seeing them. It's listening to the voice, like constantly telling other people and by proxy, you are those other people.
0: Yeah. And that if you have debt,
1: it's because you did something wrong. Exactly, exactly. And that your debt equals pain.
2: Yeah, I think I think the danger is when you start making like Melissa said, when you when you mix the Bible in or when you mix whatever spiritual you know framework you're within, mm-hmm. if you say this is God's way of doing things, that's an incredibly high bar to set. You know, if you're in this situation where I'm in debt, I'm, I'm, I'm stressed out because of that, you maybe cut off some of your critical critical thinking and you don't think about does the entirety of my spiritual heritage, the Bible, say about this. You hear some cherry-picked verses, the borrower is slave yeah. to the lender, you know, a couple other proverbs scattered here and there that you kind of skip over. The Bible says a whole lot more about money than What Dave Ramsey chooses to quote from.
0: Yeah. I know as we were thinking about having this conversation, Dan, you started looking more at like, what does the Bible say about finances? And, you know, there's a lot of practical things listed in Proverbs. I know you've looked around there and maybe some other places, and I'm curious what you've seen, what themes did you see as you looked at finances?
2: The book of Proverbs probably speaks more to poverty, um, riches, and money than any other book of the Bible. I mean, there's a few passages, Paul and Jesus both say a few things, but Proverbs speaks the most to it. And there's a lot of Proverbs that just, you know, my brain just kind of skipped past them in dealing with money. But Proverbs 21, 13, the one who shuts his ears to the cry of the poor will also himself call out and not be answered. Like there's many Proverbs like that, that talk about how we're to treat the poor. Mm. Um, Proverbs nine seven. the righteous person knows the rights of the poor, but the wicked one does not understand these concerns. Being in the Dave Ramsey framework, you never heard verses about how we actually should be treating the poor. It was always, here's what I need to be doing to get my financial situation in order, which is good, but we shouldn't just look at those verses. We should see what should we be doing to those around us.
3: Mm-hmm. I think there's certainly nuance missing from anything. When you have that kind of legalism, like here are the rules, here are the steps, and this is the right way. And here's the answer. You're missing uh, grace for people uh, for their unique situations. Having grace for people is a core part of the Christian faith to lack that kind of grace, I think is damaging to people back to your episode with Curtis Chang. And he said, you know, we are we are drawn to people who say they have the answer, you know, they tell us, you know, if you just follow this, then life will be easier and you will be walking in your Christian faith. And so I look at that and what I will admit and own is, you know, to the extent that, you know, I was following Dave or or whoever else for certain parts of my faith, that that really was a part of spiritual laziness having discernment about any area of our life is is difficult it it requires thought and study and prayer whether that's finances whether that's how best to love somebody it's a lot easier to just go oh that person has the answer and if i just do that wow i've i've done it i've checked that box but to have that discernment it takes work and and it takes uncertainty you have to live in that uncertainty of like am i doing the right thing. And it it requires, I feel like, to stay connected to the Lord through prayer because you you don't have the answer. And it's way easier to look to someone who says they have the answer.
0: I think the thing that really made me start to think deeply about some of the things that are broken about the system. I just could not imagine an answer to what to do with a person that is really in poverty. And the fact that I just couldn't see giving them a free copy of FPU, bringing them out of it. You know, if they're living in their car and they don't have family nearby, if you don't have money to budget. There's no amount of budgeting that's going to fix that. Get another job is not that easy.
3: For me, one of the, one of the most gracious things that God did for me, is to put me in a community of really sick children and families mm. and people with disabilities. You know, it's easy to say, well this person should not be on social services or welfare or if they could just get a job, they could earn more. Until you are walking shoulder to shoulder with people, I I really question whether you should have an opinion about it, to be honest, because you know, walking with people of all different walks of life and different backgrounds and experiences and poverty levels and education levels and intelligence levels, physical challenges and mental challenges, and you see what challenges exist, you know, it's hard to say, oh, I have the answer for you. And it's, and it's FPU. When you have a parent who is on disability, uh, because of, you know, an accident or a mental health issue. And then they have a child who has a rare disease that's in the hospital all the time. So how are they really going to work when they're constantly going to the hospital? And then their spouse leaves them. Who who has the answer for that? The answer for that really is love and grace and walking alongside people in
0: relationship.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I had a conversation just this week at work with one of the um, case managers trying to get placement for people. I'm an ICU nurse and like a lot of the people they're past the really critical phase of their care and they're not well enough to go to like a regular floor and like maybe they need long-term care in a ventilator facility or something but they don't have the funds either their insurance refuses to pay for it or Medicaid like trying to find a place that'll accept Medicaid and these people are just in terrible situations. Working harder is not going to work for them. It's just not. When they have left their husband because of his drug problem, and then what was supposed to be a routine surgery turned into major surgery, and you have children at home, what's, what's your answer? I mean, it's not going to be work harder, budget more. All these people that have gotten COVID that are now disabled, the answer is not just work harder and make more money. It's Mm -hmm. not an income problem. I guess, theoretically, it's an income problem, but it's a problem of these people need help. And a three to six month emergency fund wasn't going to cut it for what they've been through and what the rest of their life is going to be like now.
0: Going through you know, FPU and, you know, adhering to the baby steps, listening to Dave on the radio can lead you to believe whether he's saying this specifically or not. The reason why you're doing well is because you did it and that you did the right thing. You followed the rules and that's why you're set. And that's why you're okay. You know, come the pandemic come, whatever we're fine because we followed the rules. I also got super lucky, right? I didn't have to be as exposed to things during the pandemic because of the kind of jobs that we did and the kind of schooling that we did. And there are so many other factors at play that I just, I realize now that leads to looking at other people who are struggling financially and thinking, well, you must have done something wrong. Or if you had done it the right way
2: if you just follow the you rules you wouldn't be
0: there. And if you follow the rules and they don't work, it must have been that you didn't follow them correctly.
3: It's the flip side of saying if if it worked for me, it was because of, you know, that I worked really hard and you know, I did all these things. The flip side of that is if if it doesn't work for you, there's something wrong with you. To me, that is completely antithetical to the Christian faith. In that, you know, we're saying, you know, God moves things in ways that, that we can't understand. And yes, we're called to be diligent and responsible and kind. And, and God uses that in certain ways, but it does not guarantee us financial success. And the flip side is that we can be all those things and not have material success. I think for me, there was this moment. I don't remember what year it was. It was probably 2019 where I watched the movie American gospel and that movie never mentions Dave Ramsey, but at some point in the movie, it was like the light bulb went on and I was like, oh, this is prosperity gospel. Oh my gosh, this is prosperity
1: gospel. It's just packaged differently.
2: Ecclesiastes 9, 11 ends with time and chance happened to them all.
1: That's, that's exactly what I was thinking of.
2: We have to be able to admit that good things happen to bad people and bad things happen to good people. And sometimes financial situations work out for for people that are at a disadvantage and sometimes people that have all the advantages in the world. All it takes is one, here in America, all it takes is one cancer diagnosis and that can come crashing.
1: Or you get get hit on the highway, you know,
2: Mm
1: -hmm. to push back.
0: If someone were to say, hey, y'all, are you saying that it is wrong? to have money. Are we saying that
1: Hmm.
3: not at all? I think money is money is neutral and can be a tool, but you know, God says, render under Caesar. What is Caesar? So we pay our taxes. We do, we live out our life with money, just how we live out our life with anything else, be diligent and responsible and loving and doing justice and having you know, ongoing discernment about how to operate with it.
1: Yeah. And I think it's just a matter of, you have to understand it's not permanent, it's temporary. I mean, if you're a Christian, you're supposed to believe that everything is temporary. Even our, even our money, our money is temporary. All we saw this with the power grid failure in Texas last year, you know, if the power grid had completely failed and been failed for a couple of months, like it was down for a couple of months, Texas would have turned into a third world country. And that could happen anywhere in the U.S., you know, so your money is not going to save you. Even if you work and you have all of this money, if something happens and our system is that money is all pointless, it's it's not worth anything. And so I, I don't think your security can be in your wealth. I mean, the Bible has a lot to say about that, about your security not being in your wealth. But I feel like this plan it relies on the wealth to be your security you know it's like the the wealth has become your god but no i don't i don't think the money itself is wrong i think you just have to have a firm understanding that it's temporary and it could go away and what really matters is well, what you've what you've been doing with the money and what you've been doing with your life
3: it's always about like what is our goal too i mean it's one thing to say i want to be responsible with my money and pay my debts as they're due, provide for my family and be able to buy groceries and have a house. But it's a whole nother thing to say, I want to be a millionaire because, you know, I tend to go to first Timothy six, nine, which is those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. and. I think we've, I know I've seen that. Mm -hmm.
2: And preparing for this, just yesterday, I saw a chart pop up in my feed and it's from the World Inequality Database and they they rank income across the entire planet. And if you make more, according to their data, if you make $100,000 or more, which software engineers by themselves typically do, you are in the 90th percentile or the top 10% of the United States in terms of income, you're in the top 2 or 3% across the entire world. And you know just skipping down a few verses from what Melissa just said in verse 17 of 1 Timothy 6, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty nor set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. It's a, it's a charge for me. I need to be doing more to help others Mm -hmm. with what we've been given.
0: You know, to what you said, Melissa, trying to follow rules doesn't result in that close relationship and deep thinking and deep prayer and listening to the Holy Spirit guiding you and saying, what are these principles that I have learned in scripture and who is God placed in my life and how does he want my money to be used beyond just that 10% that it's all gods to begin with. Instead of thinking this much is mine, do with whatever I want with, and this much is God's to do what he wants with, to like hold the whole thing with an open hand, knowing it could be taken away at any time. As you're doing that, whether you do a budget meeting or not, how am I serving God with this money? Some months it's going to mean putting money aside for your next vehicle. And some months it's going to mean the single mom that you just ran across that doesn't have a way to get to work or needs extra childcare that you're going to be able to slip some money in her mailbox. And she'll never know when we
3: hold our money so tightly, when we hold that 90% hold this plan that we have that we're on. Um, and, and it's going to result in this. We are at risk of sacrificing everything else for that. I can remember my own situation in 2018 where I had to face the choice, you know, to do the right thing, the honorable thing, the thing with integrity, put at risk my entire financial world, my entire life, my marriage, my home, put everything at risk to, to make the choice that had integrity and truth. That's a hard thing. And I'm not trying to pat myself on the back, I'm saying that's always a hard thing that, you know, if we hold that money tightly, it makes it that much harder to place things at risk in order to honor the Lord, in order to do the things that, um, he calls us to do that aren't related to money, tell the truth and protect the vulnerable and have integrity to everyone around you.
0: As we wrap this up, how is your approach And you're thinking when it comes to finances, especially especially you guys, Dan, and Summer, how has it changed? What looks different these days for you when it comes to money, budgeting?
2: You know, as I was explaining this to some friends getting ready for this, um, I mean, we're in the privileged position that we're not living paycheck to paycheck or month to month. We look at our, where did the money go? Are we on track to where we want to be? But we don't have a stressful budget meeting like this is, we're going to spend this exact dollar amount on groceries this coming month.
1: Yeah. Oh yeah. And like, for me being the primary grocery buyer at the time, like I remember walking through Walmart at Christmas one year because I couldn't bake cookies. I was putting things back on the shelf. Um, kind of like what you were talking about, Melissa. And so, yeah, we don't do that monthly budget meeting anymore. But I think for me personally, I can't speak for Dan, but, uh, for me personally, I am a lot less judgmental and I have a lot more grace for people about their money choices. I believe that you have to do what's best for your family. If if you are thinking carefully about how to spend your money and you're doing, sometimes what's best for your family isn't what's best for another family. And that's okay. It's not a cookie cutter thing. You don't have to do these rules or you're a bad person or you're irresponsible.
0: As we were finishing up our conversation, I mentioned the one thing we did that most helped our finances. Probably the best financial choice we made was to not wait to buy our house. And that was not what Dave.
3: How many people do we
0: know that have said if they had followed
3: that advice with housing, they would not have made an extraordinary amount of of capital and and wealth for their families over the course of this run up in housing. If they had waited till they had three to six months expenses and 20% down. Instead, they bought a house. They broke the rules, bought a house with 5% down.
0: Isn't it crazy that we still talk about this? Like we did something scandalous. We broke Dave's rules.
3: I have a very nuanced budget that I just try to make good choices. Good financial choices. I buy quality items that don't break down. I have three credit cards that I like have a little chuckle. I would have a little chuckle every time I use them, but I use them almost every day. I think last year I got in cash back double what Dave used to give us for Christmas, which I think is really funny. Uh, I pay them off every month. I don't feel guilt anymore. And I like summer feel much less judgmental about other people. And in fact, hope that I can help in some way. And I'm really, really thankful that God has provided.
0: I really wish we had more time for this portion of our conversation, because it deserves a lot more than just this one minute. But we did talk a bit about some of the problems we've seen with so-called Christian health sharing organizations that are often promoted by Ramsey at their events as an alternative to traditional health insurance.
3: One of the problems I had a lot with Dave recommending health sharing organizations is that those organizations are never letting in people who have serious health problems that are very expensive. So of course the premiums in a health sharing organization are going to be cheaper because of the population in them does not include the really expensive people like my family or any of the families that are in the rare disease community whose children are on medications that are you know, half a million to a million dollars a year. They're excluded because of pre-existing conditions, or you'd have to pay for a certain amount of time, and nobody can afford that. So none of those families are ever going to be in these organizations. So they're naturally going to be cheaper. And I ask, is that really Christian to make mm. it cheaper for some people by excluding
1: the people who are really expensive? In a word, no, <laughs> no, it is not Christian.
0: that book that I mentioned at the beginning of the show by DL Mayfield? Well, she went on in that chapter to say this. Some days I dream about starting my own radio show about money. Instead of highlighting all the success stories of families who have eaten beans and rice for five years in order to pay off their mortgage, I would only take calls from people who had tried very hard to follow the six easy steps to be a millionaire and who were thwarted by both systems and policies that punish large portions of our society. People who experience job losses or who have prison records or crippling health bills or have family members who desperately need financial help. She went on to say, I am almost positive nobody would want to listen, but I wish they would because when well-meaning, well-intentioned, privileged people hear only the financial success stories, they are being discipled in how to judge and belittle all of those who fail in the landscape of the American dream. It was so great to share this episode with you all again. And as a reminder, there is some bonus audio from this conversation in the Patreon community that I shared this past spring. I'd love to keep this conversation going over on Twitter and Instagram, so come say hi there, or you can talk to me through the Facebook page. I'm Untangled Faith on Instagram and Facebook, and I'm Faith Untangled on Twitter. For more information about supporting the show, check out patreon.com slash untangledfaith. You can also find all of the show notes at UntangledFaithPodcast.com. The Untangled Faith Podcast is hosted and edited by me, Amy Fritz. A special thanks to my Patreon supporters. This podcast is made possible by their support. And a special thank you to my producers, Michelle Pionik, Phil and Susan Perdue, Pamela Forsyth, and Shelley Taylor. Thanks so much for listening. I'll see you next week. Merry Christmas.